Our scripture reading this evening is from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and I'm going to begin with verse 19. So John chapter 1 and verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending, And remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Well, so far our reading of Scripture then. Congregation, we've come to a a significant place in our study of our catechism this evening. And you know that I have phrased this in terms of walking on a path of life. The path of life. The path began by asking us, what is your only comfort in this life and death? And that path has already set before us then the fact that the life that we live in this world is not one of comfort. It is a a life in which we're seeking comfort, in which we're seeking happiness and satisfaction. And so the very next question was, then why? What is the reason why we, are, why we are in this misery, in this condition where we find ourselves? And you remember the catechism says, it puts the finger on sin, the sin of man. It points to the law of God which exposes our sin. And sin is the cause of misery. By the way, congregation, sin is always the cause of misery. We spoke about that this morning when we said that when the voice of God is not allowed to speak into our life, when we block it out, We bring untold disorder. We bring formlessness and emptiness into our lives. Well, sin is the cause of misery. Always sin is the cause of misery. And the Catechism has continued us, taking us down that road. It has taught us that we were not originally created that way. 
with misery and sin. That it was our fall into sin which brought that misery upon us. Our catechism has talked about our impossibility to save ourselves. Then the catechism brought us, and this is just in the recent, in the recent uh, Lord's Days that we've considered the possibility of a mediator. The mediator, if there is one, would have to be human so that he could suffer, so that he could die. The mediator would have to be divine. That's what we considered last week. The mediator would have to be divine in order to be able to survive the wrath of God that would be poured out upon him if he stood in our place and took the punishment that we deserve. Well, congregation, we come to that happy moment then in the catechism. When the catechism then asks the question, which of course we've been answering all along, but the catechism now brings us to that point on the path of life after all that darkness, after all that misery. And maybe you thought, now how much longer is this preacher going to go on about the sin and the misery of man? Well, this is the happy day, congregation, when the, the glorious light of salvation comes on. When you might say the cover is pulled off, right? When it is exposed, the glorious person of the mediator who answers all the, the prerequisites, you might say, of what was needed in a mediator is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have this happy, isn't this one of the happiest, if not the happiest question in the whole catechism, right? After a long road of darkness, the catechism then says, then who is this mediator? True God and at the same time a true and righteous man. And the happy answer, our Lord Jesus Christ who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. Well, there's the answer, congregation. There's the answer that to this poor sinner, sunk in sin and misery, and convicted of his own guilt, convicted of his own impossibility to save himself, is this glorious revelation, and that's the title of the sermon this evening, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's a revelation, congregation, to a sinner, as I said, who is convicted of his complete inability to save himself, who is convicted of the complete justice of God to send him and to cast him away into hell eternally. Now there is the person of the mediator that is, that is opened before us. And I tried, to, I tried to highlight some of those themes in the call to worship, right? Behold, your king comes to you. Right? That's really the, the whole gist of the sermon this morning. And also in Psalm 24, Behold, your king Right? This is him. This is the one. This is the mediator who answers all the issues that have that a sinful people can have. And I thought of this too as I prepared this message. And my first point there, a waiting people. Because when you put this in the context of the Jewish uh, of the Jewish society and the Jewish religion, right, you have you have really a, a people that is a, a waiting people. They're waiting. And they're, and they're suffering. The Apostle Paul teaches us that the, the Mosaic Law was a burden that neither we nor our fathers could bear. And they're, they're, they're oppressed by this, right? And we know that that was intentional, that God intended that to bring the Jewish people to an end of their own working. To bring the Jewish people to see that they, they didn't have the answer for their own sin in their own hearts. And finally... Well, let, let me take you through some of those steps, right? In Genesis 3.15, we have the first promise, right? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. 
will crush the head of the serpent himself. Right? That first glimmer of light after the fall. On this path of life, the first glimmer of light that is shown in the darkness. But still, the Jewish people are awaiting people, right? They're looking. They're expecting. God says to Abraham, In your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You might say that light goes a little bit brighter. But the Jews wait. They look. God makes a promise to David. He says, David, your family will never fail to have someone sitting on the throne of Israel. There will always be a son of David on the throne of Israel. And the Jewish people think, what can the fulfillment of that promise be when we know that Israel has long since left behind the seed of David? There's no son of David sitting on the literal throne of Israel right now. Right? And so their minds continue to stir. They continue to look. They're waiting. They're expectant. Finally, we get to the last chapter of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, verse 5, makes a, a promise of the coming of Malachi. I'm sorry, the coming of Elijah. Uh, Malachi 4, verse 5, he says, Behold, I, that is God, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Again, God promises to send one who's going to come. And the people look and they wait. And then we come to our text this evening in John chapter 1 because finally the last prophet, the last herald of the Old Testament, you know that John the Baptist belongs to the Old Testament. I know he's in the New Testament, but he belongs to the Old Testament dispensation, you might say, to the Old Testament religion. Uh, Remember Jesus said that even a child in the kingdom of God knows more than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist knew a lot. But he was still in the Old Testament. He's the last of these Old Testament prophets, right? And he's, he's John, you might say, he feels the sense that it's, it's coming soon. You know, we're, we're on the cusp of the, coming, of, the, of the coming one, the one that we're looking for. And John the Baptist, right? The, the, uh, the, the Pharisees even confused John the Baptist with the coming one, right? They ask him, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And every time he says, no. No, that's not me. But John answers, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John cries out, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Why would you make straight the way of the Lord? Because the Lord is coming. He's coming. Clear the obstacles. Make it straight. The Lord, the great King, is coming. And then, congregation, it happens. Oh, what a happy day. Can you you sense something of it this evening? As John the Baptist stands there at the end of thousands of years of Old Testament waiting. He stands there. Do you see him in your mind's eye tonight? He stands there. And suddenly he sees. He sees the Lamb of God coming. And it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. You might say the cover is pulled back. There he is. That's the one. John the Baptist recognizes him. And he cries out, Behold 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Can you imagine, congregation, that moment? All the years of waiting finally come to an end and John the Baptist sees him. And as the last Old Testament prophet, he's given that inestimable privilege of crying out, Behold, this now is the one. Here he is in flesh. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. This is the coming one. Here he is. Congregation, I, I feel like that's where we're at this evening. I feel like our catechism has led us to this point where I, as the preacher, can stand before you and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in the same way as John the Baptist stood there and cried out to the Jewish people, Behold the Lamb of God. Let's look at these words then. Behold the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin, and finally, of the world. Behold the Lamb. Now what does that mean? Why does John choose Lamb? Why does he not say, Behold the King? That would be proper, right? That's even in the Psalms. We read that from our Psalms this evening. Why does he not say, Behold the Prophet? Behold the prophet, right? That's what uh, Moses prophesied, or God prophesied through Moses, right? That, uh, or God promised through Moses that he would send the prophet in Deuteronomy 18, right? There's all these number of different things. But no, he says, behold the lamb, the lamb of God. And why is that significant? Well, again, right away, and if, you're, if you think biblically, right, you right away you start filing through the Old Testament. What, what can this mean? What's the, what's the picture? What's the figure that we're intended to get here, Right? And maybe you think about the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, right? Whose blood was shed, who was killed, and the blood was smeared on the doorpost, right? As a sign that the angel of death would pass over the houses. Now that could be. There's also a mention in Isaiah chapter 53 of a lamb. Behold, he was led as a lamb. In Isaiah 53 and verse 7, uh, Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So we have a lamb there. But I think, actually, congregation, the connection here is to the sin offering, which actually isn't that much different from, from both of those. The Passover lamb and the lamb in Isaiah 53 both kind of had this connotation. But the sin offering was very explicitly, right? A, a, a offering, a lamb, didn't have to be a lamb, by the way. It could have been other animals as well, but one of them was a lamb that was slain, right? Why? To take away the guilt of someone who had sinned. It was a sin offering. It was an offering that you brought to make atonement for your sin. And so when John the Baptist cries out, Behold the lamb! Here is the sin offering. This is the animal, right, that will count as the sin offering that will be once for all. Never again will a sin offering need to be brought. But this sin offering... This sin offering will count for sins and for all sins that you may have committed and that you may commit in the future. This is the sin offering to end all sin offerings. The Israelites had to bring a sin offering again and again. But now the Lamb of God comes and He is the sin offering that ends all sin offerings. Now, the reason we can say quite confidently that the Lamb here is the sin offering is because of what's next, right? Who takes away the sin. That very explicitly connects the lamb to the expiation of sin, right? The removal of sin and guilt. But before I move on to who takes away the sin, I want to very quickly say something about of God. Behold the lamb of God. And I think when you put that in the context of the sin offering, 
Dear friends, you can see that this is a sin offering provided by God himself. God provides this sin offering. This is not a lamb that you take from your own herd. This is a lamb that you take that God himself provides. And that when we put our trust, when we believe in this lamb, we are putting our trust in what God himself has provided as a lamb and as a sin offering. So, I move then to who takes away the sin. Now, congregation, I take you back again to the path of life as we've walked it in the past sermons and as we've moved from our misery and our misery which is caused by our sin. Sin is the cause of misery and our guilt, our impossibility to save ourselves. And I ask you, congregation, this evening, what is it that you need done? What is it as we walk along the path of life that we need more than anything else? In a sense, as we came into church this evening, we're crying out for it. You know, I, I think about that, that uh, blind man who came to Jesus. And Jesus says, what would you have me do for you? And he says, Lord, that I may receive my sight. He's blind. And the man may have had all sorts of needs in his life. But he says, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And congregation, isn't that our position this evening? As we look back along the path, as we looked into the law of God, as we saw our sin and our guilt before a holy God, isn't it the case that we say, Lord, my sin, my guilt, that's dragging me down to hell, that's going to unleash the curse and the wrath of God upon me. Lord, my sins must be dealt with. My sins have to be taken away. And now John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who will lead us to the promised land, who will teach us the truth, all wonderful things, congregation, but no, he presses straight home to the crying need of the hour, who takes away the sins of the world. And dear friends, if you've been listening, if you've felt in the past weeks something of our misery and sin before God, then this has to be your cry as well. Lord, just as the blind man, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Whatever other issues and problems you may have in life, Tonight, it becomes a matter of one thing. My sin and my guilt must be dealt with. And here comes a mediator. And John the Baptist cries out, who takes away the sin of the world congregation. That's gospel tonight, isn't it? It's gospel if you've felt the convicting power of the law of God in the past messages. Otherwise, congregation, if you're not a sinner before God this evening, such news is rather okay. Blase, I can take it or I can leave it. But congregation, for a blind man, he knows what he needs. And for a person convicted of his sin and guilt this evening, you know what you need. And John the Baptist announces, this is the one. This is the Lamb of God. What a, what a blessed truth of the gospel. Congregation, I move quickly to the words of the world. Of the world. In the, in the first reading of this, that may be difficult for us, to think of, does he take away the sins of the whole world, of all the people living in the world? Uh, we certainly don't believe that. And Jesus is not teaching that. Congregation, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's throwing the door open so wide. He's throwing that door open so wide tonight. Now, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, you cannot exclude yourself this evening. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, no, I know we don't think that way much, but certainly the people that John the Baptist was preaching to, right? He doesn't say, behold the sins, or behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Jewish people. That's probably what they were expecting. 
That's probably what they were looking for. But no, John throws that door so wide open this evening. And so wide open. It's to take away the sins of the world of Jew and Gentile. No matter where you may live. No matter who you may be. But congregation, for us this evening, we may also say, we may preach that every Sunday again. That the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world for all kinds of sinners. But also for the worst kind of sinners. In other words, no matter what you may have done in your life. Right? It's not just all kinds of people, but all kinds of sinners. No matter what guilt you may have performed or run up in in your life, no matter what sins you may have done. And we look back in our life congregation and there's things that we think, now certainly that must exclude me from the kingdom of God, if anything will. But no congregation, John the Baptist announces tonight that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All kinds of people and all kinds of sinners. No matter how dark, no matter how evil the sin you may have committed, this Lamb of God is sufficient to take away your sins. And that's the message we hear from of the world. The message we should hear, congregation, is that you are not excluded. That you are not excluded. No one this evening may exclude themselves. I know there are people who rashly conclude for some reason that they're reprobate. There are others who conclude that they've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. No, that, that won't work tonight. I, I know a fellow who I was quite convinced wanted to avoid the claims of the gospel by claiming, almost happily claiming, that he'd committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't work tonight. Is there such a thing? Yes, I, there is. But as you've probably heard many times from this pulpit, that if you think you've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, you haven't. Because you can repent of all sin. And this Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. What a, what a wonderful truth that is, congregation. And, you know, theologically that we explain this, that the atonement of Christ is sufficient to satisfy for the sins of anyone or of any person, of anyone. But, of course, we also know, and we've, we've uh, talked about that here, that in eternity past, right, God has chosen to give a select number of people to Jesus Christ for his, for their, uh, to save them. And that, of course, is hidden in God's decree. But now John opens the door wide, congregation. He opens the door wide enough for you, for anyone who will come. Now, before I move to my application, congregation, I also want to point out to you, uh, especially in light of the fact that in the morning sermons we're talking about creation and Genesis. And I find this interesting, and others have pointed this out as well, that in Genesis 1, the author makes very clear these days it's quite interesting. And if you take your Bible and follow, you'll have to see this in your Bible. It would be important that you look at this. And I put this on the outline as well, that in John, 9, or John 1 and verse 19, you have John who's with the priests and the Levites, and that would count as day one. But then the text makes very explicit in verse 29, the next day. So that would be day two. The next day, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Day two. Then on day three, you can look at verse 35. Again, the next day. And some of you might think I'm making too much of this. But it is interesting that the author is is leading us day by day here. So this would be day three in verse 35. And this is where uh, Jesus uh, speaks uh, to Andrew and John, they they stay with him that hour. And in verse 40, 
One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, this is on on day four. Now, part of the reason this is day four, you'll notice in verse 39, I know this gets complicated, but in verse 39 you have, it's still day three, but notice that they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. That would be about 4 p.m. So they would not have had time to go out and get, in verse 40 you read about John who goes out, right? Uh, John and Andrew follow him, and then they go find Simon. John and Andrew go find Simon, right? That would have taken place on the next day, so that would have been day four. Then day five begins in verse 43. The next day, he proposed to go into, he purposed to go into Galilee, right? That's day five. And then in day six, would be traveling to Cana, right? And by the way, on day five is when he brings, he sees Nathaniel. And then day six would have been traveling to Cana. And then notice that on chapter two, we're very explicitly told on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, again, I don't want to make more of this than I should, but I did find it interesting, and many other commentators have pointed this out, that John means for his chapter, John 1, to be a, a replica of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And, of course, that's very clear. In John 1 is, in the beginning was the word, right? That sounds very much like Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, right? And then you have day, day, the next day, the next day, Now, why would John do that? Well, very likely because John intends for his, he intends for his readers to understand that the coming of Jesus is a new creation. It's a new creation. And Jesus is working day by day and bringing and meeting, right, these new disciples. John the Baptist is speaking. Then the Lamb of God comes. And this is a new creation week, as it were. Well, Again, I, I don't want to make more out of that than, than necessary. I actually wouldn't have probably brought that up unless we were working through uh, the book of Genesis in the morning. And I thought that interesting that John would uh, speak in that way about the days. And by the way, in, in John chapter 2 and verse 1, when he talks about the third day, very likely that third day would have been the third day from when Jesus met Nathaniel, when the last event happened. And they're inclusive days, right? So... The third day in Jewish understanding is there's a day between us and then there's the day. So a day Jesus met Nathanael. They traveled to Cana on that second day. And on the third day, Jesus arrives at the feast, the wedding feast, where he changed the water into wine. Well, I just put that out there for your interest. But let me move now, congregation, to make some points of application on these truths as, we, as we've seen them this evening. And this evening, congregation, we think, first of all, of the theological truth. Because we've seen a great deal of theology, haven't we, over the last couple of Lord's Days as we've worked through these issues of who the mediator is, what it is, what is sin, what is guilt, what does it mean to be created righteous, and the fall of man, and all those things, all those theological truths that we learn. And I think that that we can understand those truths. Right? We've, we've talked about terms. I've listed some of them there. Guilt, atonement, forgiveness, substitution, satisfaction, mediator. And that's important, congregation. That is important that we understand those things and that we have them in our minds and that we understand uh, the teaching of Scripture on this point. But it goes much deeper than that, doesn't it? 
those truths which exist in our minds and which exist in, the, in this church, in the confessional statements of our church, they have to become a personal experience, don't they, in our own life and walk with God. There has to be an experiential truth, right? The truth is beautiful, and we see it as it's out there. But there comes a time in our life congregation when we have to apply those things, when we have to take hold of them for ourselves, when we have to exercise faith. And of course, that's looking at it from the human perspective, right? We exercise faith. We believe in Christ. We apply the promises of the gospel to our own situation. Looking at it from the divine side, we know that the Holy Spirit brings these things to us. He gives us a new heart. He gives us faith so that we can take hold of Jesus Christ. But there is that personal application to our own soul that is another side of that truth. And that if these things that we've discussed and considered over the last weeks remain only theology to us, then it has no effect upon us, no effect upon our own soul then it doesn't work any kind of salvation to us. It's simply interesting knowledge and information. And you know that James has said that the devils have so much theology in their minds. But there comes that that hour and that moment, congregation, when we take hold of these things for ourselves. And when we, you might say, sign our own name to the truths that the Catechism has brought us. When we say, Amen, to what the catechism has been teaching us. Because you can also turn your back on these things, can't you? And you can say, no, I don't want any part of that. I'll go my own way. But this is the experiential side of the truth congregation. And again, if you can think about the Jewish people, right, as they, as they reflected on decades and, and, and years, millennia of time when they lived and they, and they lived under this law that oppressed them. And they couldn't abide it. They couldn't obey it. But there came that hour. There came that moment in the life of each individual Jewish believer when he or she heard the glad announcement, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in their own soul and in their own heart and with their own faith, they took hold of the Savior. They put their trust in Him. And they experienced in their own soul the forgiveness of their sins and the joy that the Spirit of God brings. That was an experience for them, congregation. You know, I think oftentimes in in the Reformed churches, uh, we, we don't talk enough about experience. And of course, there's a great danger there, isn't there? There's a great danger that we might think that we're saved by experience. That would be an error, and we've spoken about that here before. But salvation comes to us, congregation, with a whole variety of different experiences and a whole variety of different um, states of mind that are worked upon us by the Spirit of God as we come to embrace the salvation of our God. I don't suppose for a minute, and I think you'll agree, that when John the Baptist saw the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't just say, that, oh, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Congregation, I imagine that John the Baptist was delighted beyond measure that he cried out with joy and gladness, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Congregation, I put in the, in the notes there that hymn from Amazing Grace, Twas grace that taught my heart to fear 
and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. And there's that moment, congregation, when we are first regenerated by the Spirit of God and we come to embrace the gospel. I would suggest to you that probably nobody here knows that moment or hour. I I highly doubt that many Christians really can know when the Spirit of God first began to work in a saving way upon them. But this I know, congregation, this I know, that those moments in our life when we, by faith, are given to take hold of the promises of God, that is something that you cannot forget. That is an experience, congregation, that doesn't just slip by unnoticed. And may I ask you this evening, you know, because many times people will ask, well, when was the first time that that happened? You know, I'm not so concerned about the first time. I want to know the last time it happened. When was the last time, congregation, that you saw with the eyes of faith the Lamb of God approaching and that by faith you took refuge in Him? Was it this morning? Was it today? Isn't the Lord Jesus Christ worthy, congregation, that you would take refuge in Him today? He's still the Savior. And we may have been Christians for many years, but the way and the walk of faith, congregation, the path of life, is to see again and again in our life, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, congregation, as I bring this sermon to a close, I brought this with me. And I'd like to read this with you. Or not with you, it's too long for me to put in the notes. But I'd like to read it to you. I'll put a copy of this on the church's website where this sermon goes. And you can read it for yourself. But just read this with me. This is is an excerpt from The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And after the Christian and faithful went to Vanity Fair, you'll remember that faithful was martyred there. He was burned at the stake. But then Christian meets up with a man named Hopeful. And Hopeful and Christian continue the journey after they leave Vanity Fair. And they have this conversation about Hopeful's conversion. And I I read this to you not to give you a, a pattern of if you're not converted in this way, you're not truly saved. That's not my intention. But because I find that what John Bunyan describes here so accurately fits what we saw in the Catechism from the beginning until this point. And so I read this to you. Again, this is much longer than what I would normally read, but uh, it's so beautifully put. I I must read it to you. So it begins, and this is in a dialogue. They're going back and forth. Christian begins, I will ask you a question, he says to Hopeful. How came you to think at first of so doing as you do now, that is, of going on a pilgrimage? And Hopeful answers, Do you mean how came I at first to look after the good of my soul? Yes, that is my meaning. I continued a great while, says Hopeful, in the delight of those things which were seen and sold at our fair, that is, Vanity Fair. Things which I believe now would have, had I continued in them, drowned me in perdition and destruction. What things were they? All the treasures and riches of the world, says Hopeful. Also I delighted much in rioting and reveling, partying, drinking, swearing, lying, uncleanness, Sabbath-breaking, and whatnot, that tended to destroy the soul. But I found at last by hearing and considering of things that are divine, which indeed I heard of you, as also of beloved faithful, that was put to death for his faith and good living in Vanity Fair, that the end of these things is death, and that for these things' sake cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Christian, and did you presently fall under the power of this conviction? Hopeful, 
No, I was not willing presently to know the evil of sin, nor the damnation that follows upon the commission of it, but endeavored when my mind at first began to be shaken with the word to shut mine eyes against the light thereof. Christian, but what was the cause of your carrying of it thus to the first workings of God's blessed spirit upon you? And Hopeful says the causes were this. First, I was ignorant that this was the work of God upon me. I never thought that by awakenings for sin, God at first begins the conversion of a sinner. Second, sin was yet very sweet to my flesh, and I was loath to leave it. Third, I could not tell how to part with mine old companions. Their presence and actions were so desirable unto me. Fourth, the hours in which convictions were upon me were such troublesome and such heart-frighting hours that I could not bear, no, not so much as the remembrance of them upon my heart. Christian, then it seems you got rid of your trouble. Hopeful, yes, verily, but it would come into my mind again. And then I should be as bad, nay, worse than I was before. Christian, why, what was it that brought your sins to mind again? Many things, such as if I did but meet a good man in the streets. If I have heard any read in the Bible, or if mine head did begin to ache, or if I were told that some of my neighbors were sick, if I heard the bell toll for some that were dead, or if I thought of dying myself, or if I heard that sudden death happened to others, but especially when I thought of myself that I must quickly come to judgment. Christian, and could you at any time with ease get off the guilt of sin when by any of these ways it came upon you? Hopeful, no, not I, for then they got faster hold of my conscience. And then if I did but think of going back to sin, though my mind was turned against it, it would be double torment to me. How did you do then? Well, I thought I must endeavor to mend my life, or else I thought I am sure to be damned. Christian, how did you endeavor to mend? Yes, I did, said Hopeful, and fled from not only my sins, but sinful company too, and took up many religious duties as prayer, reading, speaking the truth to my neighbors. These things I did with many others, too much here to relate. And did you think yourself well then? Yes, for a while, but at the last my trouble came tumbling upon me again, and that over the neck of all my reformations. How came that about, said Christian, since you were now reformed? Hopeful there were several things brought it upon me, especially such sayings as these, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. When ye shall have done all those things, say we are unprofitable, with many more such like. From whence I began to reason with myself thus, if all my righteousnesses are filthy rags, if by the deeds of the law no man can be justified, and if when we have done all, we are yet unprofitable, then it is but a folly to think of gaining heaven by keeping the law. I further thought thus, if a man runs a hundred pounds into the shopkeeper's debt, and after that shall pay for everything he buys, yet if this old debt stands still in the book uncrossed, for that the shopkeeper may sue him and cast him into prison till he shall pay the debt. Christian, well, and how did you apply this to yourself? Why, I thought thus with myself, I have by my sins run a great way into God's book, and that my now reforming will not pay off that score. Therefore I should think still under all my present amendments, but how shall I be freed from that damnation that I have brought myself in danger of by my former transgressions? You remember our catechism had the same dilemma, right? That the former sins we have committed will also bring us 
into condemnation, even if we keep God's law perfectly. Well, carry on, says Christian. Hopeful continues, another thing that hath troubled me, even since my late amendments, is that if I look narrowly even into the best of what I do, I still see sin. New sin. Mixing itself with the best of that I do. So that now I am forced to conclude that notwithstanding my former fond conceits of myself, my pride in my own duties, I have committed sin enough in one duty to send me to hell, though my former life had been faultless. Christian, and what did you do then? Do? I could not tell what to do until I break my mind to faithful, for he and I were well acquainted. And he told me that unless I could obtain the righteousness of a man that never had sinned, neither mine own nor all the righteousness of the world could save me. A mediator, right? Maybe a mediator. And did you think he spoke true? Had he told me so when I was pleased and satisfied with my own amendments, my changes in life, I had called him fool for his pains. But now since I see my own infirmity and the sin that cleaves to even my best performances, I have been forced to be of his opinion. Christian, but did you think when at first he suggested it to you that there was such a man to be found of whom it might justly be said that he never committed sin? I must confess, says Hopeful, the words at first sounded strangely, but after a little more talk and company with him, I had full conviction about it. And did you ask him what man this was and how you might be justified by him? Yes, and he told me it was the Lord Jesus that dwelleth on the right hand of the Most High. And thus said he, you must be justified by him, even by trusting to what he hath by himself, what he hath done by himself in the days of his flesh, and suffered when he did hang on the tree. I asked him further how that man's righteousness could be of that efficacy, or that power, to justify another person before God. And he told me he was the mighty God. The mediator must be divine. He was the mighty God and did what he did and died the death also not for himself, but for me, to whom his doing and the worthiness of them should be imputed if I believed on him. And what did you do then? Hopeful, I made my objections against my believing, for that I thought he was not willing to save me. But what said faithful to you then? Says Christian. Hopeful, he bid me go to him and see. Then I said it was presumption. But he said, no, for I was invited to come. Then he gave me a book of Jesus, written by Jesus himself to encourage me the more freely to come. And he said concerning that book that every jot and tittle thereof stood firmer than heaven and earth. Then I asked him, what must I do when I come? And he told me I must entreat upon my knees with all my heart and soul the Father to reveal him to me. Then I asked him further how I must make my supplication to him. And he said, go. And you shall find him on a mercy seat, where he sits all the year long to give pardon and forgiveness to them that come. I told him that I knew not what to say when I came. And he bid me say to this effect, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and make me to know and believe in Jesus Christ. For I see that if his righteousness had not been, or I have not faith in that righteousness, I am utterly cast away. Lord, I have heard that thou art a merciful God, and hast, adorn, hast ordained that thy Son, Jesus Christ, should be the Savior of the world. And moreover, that thou art willing to bestow him upon such a poor sinner as I am. And I am a sinner indeed. 
Lord, take therefore this opportunity and magnify thy grace in thy salvation, in the salvation of my soul through thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Christian, and did you do as you were bidden? Hopeful, yes, over and over and over. And did the Father reveal his Son to you? Not at the first, nor second, nor third, nor fourth, nor fifth, nor at the sixth time either. What did you do then? What? Well, I could not tell what to do. Christian, had you not thoughts of leaving off praying? Hopeful, yes, and a hundred times twice told. And what was the reason you did not? asked Christian. I believed that that was true which had been told me. To wit, that without the righteousness of this Christ, all the world could not save me. And therefore thought I with myself, if I leave off, I die. And I can but die at the throne of grace. And with all this came into my mind, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. So I continued praying until the Father showed me his Son. And how was he revealed to you? Hopeful. I did not see him with my bodily eyes, but with the eyes of my understanding. And thus it was. One day I was very sad, I think sadder than at any one time in my life. And this sadness was through a fresh sight of the greatness and vileness of my sins. And as I was then looking for nothing but hell and the everlasting damnation of my soul, suddenly as I thought I saw the Lord Jesus look down from heaven upon me and saying, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But I replied, Lord, I am a great, a very great sinner. And he answered, My grace is sufficient for thee. Then I said, But Lord, what is believing? And then I saw from that saying, He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. That believing and coming was all one, and that he that came, that is ran out in his heart and affections after salvation by Christ, he indeed believed in Christ. Then the water, or the tears, stood in mine eyes. And I asked further, But Lord, may such a great sinner as I am be indeed accepted of thee and be saved by thee? And I heard him say, And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Then I said, But how, Lord, must I consider of thee in my coming to thee, that my faith may be placed aright upon thee? And then he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. He died for our sins and rose again for our justification. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He is a mediator. He is the mediator betwixt God and us. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. And perhaps I could include in that our text this, this evening, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From all which I gathered that I must look for righteousness in his person and for satisfaction for my sins by his blood, that what he did in obedience to his Father's law and in submitting to the penalty thereof was not for himself, but for him that will accept it for his salvation and be thankful. And now was my heart full of joy, mine eyes full of tears, and mine affections running over with love to the name, the people, and the ways of Jesus Christ. Christian, this was a revelation of Christ to your soul indeed. But tell me particularly what effect this had upon your spirit. Hopeful, it made me see that all the world 
notwithstanding all the righteousness thereof, is in a state of condemnation. It made me see that God the Father, though he be just, can justly justify the coming sinner. It made me greatly ashamed of the vileness of my former life and confounded me with the sense of mine own ignorance. For there never came thought into my heart before now that showed me so the beauty of Jesus Christ. It made me love a holy life and long to do something for the honor and glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. Yea, I thought that had I now a thousand gallons of blood in my body, I could spill it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Well, congregation, you see there, don't you, how Bunyan uh, paints that narrative, does it, don't you, of this man coming to an understanding of his sin, but then seeing the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who takes away the sins of the world. And of course, Bunyan puts that in such uh, incredible language, in such moving language. But I, I hope, congregation, that that's something that falls into our own heart. I hope there's something in our own heart that answers to that. That when we hear that, not that we, we, we judge ourselves and, and say, now, you know, did I have the same experience as what Hopeful had there? But that the fundamental truths of what he communicates there, of sin and grace, of sin and Christ, a lamb who takes away the sin of the world, that that finds an answer in your own soul. That you can hear that and rejoice to hear that. Do you remember, congregation, what we said when we first started the catechism? about Zacharias, or Caspar Alivianus, one of the authors of the catechism, when he came to die. Do you remember that last word that he said? It was in Latin. Certissimus. You remember that? Certissimus. And I believe, congregation, that when we see the Lord Jesus Christ as we've seen him this evening, that we can say that in our own life. Right? We can take refuge. We can stand on the rock of Jesus Christ and say, Certissimus, most certain. Amen. Almighty God,